too much for me. So anyway, good morning to you and happy Mother's Day to all the moms here. Thanks, I'll just put that there. You know what I need? I usually don't look at it, but my watch, okay. <laughs> Thanks. If I was to ask most Christians who the greatest theologian was, I'm pretty sure I'd, I'd probably get answers like uh, St. Augustine, St. Thomas Aquinas, Martin Luther, John Calvin, Tom, uh, Jonathan Edwards, names like that. But if that's Hollywood, uh, I'm busy right now. I'll get back to them. On, on, uh, but usually, people forget that the greatest theologian in the Christian church is Paul, St. Paul. He was the greatest theologian. I think my time's up. Is that, that's what it is. They're trying to get me, <laughs> trying to let me know. That's it, buddy. Uh, that's the new hook that they use. Instead of a hook, they just ring the bell. It's like the gong show, which is they used to have years ago. All right, anyway, uh, before I get too far off here, uh, it's St. Paul. And Paul not only was the greatest theologian, but Paul knew how to take theology and show it in practical living. He knew how to take doctrine and apply it for duty, we could say. Like that Paul wouldn't just talk high theological type in the clouds. He'd say, and this is what it looks like. This is what you're supposed to do. And today's verses that I'm taking is, the, I think, the classic example of what doctrine should lead to. And uh, if you want to turn to the book of Romans, chapter 12. I'm going to be using those two verses for my message today, but those two verses are really built upon 11 chapters. And I promise I won't go verse by verse. Through. I'm not going to do a review. Let's review the chapter. I'll go verse by verse. I'm not going to do that to you. But I, I will just hit some highlights because we need to look at that because these verses start with the classic therefore. That means this is a conclusion to something. This is the result of what we've been looking at, he's saying here. And uh, so if you want to look at that, I'd like to pray first, though, and then we'll read those verses and we'll get into the message. Father, thank you for this day, thank you for every day that you've given us, Lord, for all the blessings that we have in Christ, for the life that you've given us in that new life in Christ, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for your grace and mercy to us continually. And Lord, we ask you would come now and bless us during this time, Lord that you would have your way. Lord, uh, help me, I pray, 
to speak only your truth. And Lord, help those who are hearing, Lord, that that truth could be applied to their hearts, that it would not just be more information, more knowledge, but like I was just explaining about Paul, that it would be truth that we would apply to our lives, Lord. Please help us, I pray, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Paul begins this chapter with the words, Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. After he tells us what our response should be, then he tells us how to do it. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, his pleasing, and perfect will. Romans, there was 11 chapters, like I said. I'm going to try to give a very quick, give me maybe eight minutes or so, and because I want us to have the feel of what we're there for what the therefore is there for, as they say. So I even to try to help me stay on track, I have a couple notes here to, to boil things, just to hit a couple of highlights quickly. Paul begins in Romans, and he talks about general revelation. And he makes it clear that God has made it clear that there is no excuse for anyone in the world to not realize that there is a God. He makes it so clear. In fact, it's so clear that he says that man is without excuse. Men have no excuse. Now, I, I remember the old, the old argument years ago. What about the innocent native in Africa or in New Guinea or some foreign place that has never heard about the Bible and about Jesus Christ? Is God going to punish them? Well, Romans 1 makes it clear. God doesn't punish people because they never heard the Bible and they never heard about Jesus. They face his wrath because they've denied his existence, which he says he made clear in nature. It's so obvious, I'm putting in my words, it's so obvious that there's a God by looking at nature that how can you deny it? And what he says is what man has done is exchange the truth of God for a lie. Idolatry. Try to replace God with something else. We do. We know that's impossible. John Calvin was the one who said, he said, our hearts are like little idol factories. They're constantly creating idols. We naturally, we, we, we have this natural allergy to God in our unredeemed state. We, we want to resist God. We want to, to the point of denying that he exists. The word says, if you just look, all his uh, power 
and who he is is revealed in nature by looking at that. I, I really respect, and I mean that, men like Nick Camelloni, who's a scientist. And he sees God everywhere in his work. I used to know a, a, a scientist named Greg Long. He was in, in another church I was in for years, and he also worked at Stony Brook. He was a toxic biologist. And again, like Nick, I used to ask him three or four times. He's one of those guys where you ask him what he does, and after he tells you, then you ask him, what do you do? You know, it's like, and I can remember, and the sad part is I did that like two or three times with Greg, you know, I, each time, and it was, he was a very patient man with me. Uh, but anyway, he said, when I used to look under the microscope, he says, and examine with the work he was doing, he says, I saw the fingerprints of God everywhere. He says, how could I deny the existence of God when I look at what he's created? Anyway, so Paul lays that foundation down. I better go faster in the other chapters. All right, here we go. Chapter 2, he says, it's, it's not only pagans and Gentiles that have gone astray, but God's own people have. The Jews, his chosen people, have decided to also pull away from God themselves. And they've taken that, that covenant relationship with God, and what they've done is made it, and you see it through the prophets, they've made it an outward religion instead of an inward relationship with God. I'm not even going to quote scripture, I'm just going to keep moving here. Chapter 3, it says, both the Jews and the Gentiles are under God's judgment. He says, the whole world is under God's judgment because no one is righteous. It, uh, I think it's uh, uh, verse 20 in chapter 3. It says, therefore, no one will be, I think, no one will be deemed or declared righteous, you know, by following the law. No one will be. Not by the works of the law. We can't, we can't be declared righteous by doing work our, on our own because it's imperfect. It's sin-stained. What did God say through Isaiah the prophet? He said, all your righteous acts are like filthy rags in my sight. Anything we do is stained with sin. Dr. Larry Crabb, great Christian psychologist and counselor, he used to say, in my finest moments, that I have done, he said. I can see that red stain of sin in there somewhere. He said, it's never perfect for what God requires. And the, it tells us that every human being falls short. Most of us all know Romans 3.23, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And this is man's condition. So we're looking at, here's the beginning of Paul's letter here, and these three chapters are showing the hopeless condition of mankind. And then he just touches a little bit on the, the issue of salvation by uh, justification. Salvation and justification by faith. He just starts to touch on that a little bit here. Now, in chapter 4, Paul goes into justification by faith. And I want you to try to remember some of these concepts. He goes into justification by faith. He uses the example of Abraham. Go back to the book of Genesis, chapter 15, verse 6. It says, Abram believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. 
This was before Abraham ever did anything, before he was circumcised, before he did anything for the Lord, any type of outward work. No, he believed God and it was credited as righteousness. He was justified in the eyes of God because of his faith in God. That's how we're justified. The whole uh, Reformation in the 15th, 16th century, it was all about that issue. How is a man stand justified before God? Is it his works? Is it faith? Or is it, as some would say, a little bit of faith and a little bit of works? And the reformer said the Bible makes it clear. It's justification by faith alone. That word alone was the big issue, one of the big issues in the Reformation, because it's important. It's by faith alone. We can't add anything to the work of Christ. All right, chapter 5, Paul goes into the fruits of justification. And one of my favorite, I, I say that every other week, but one of my favorite verses is in chapter 5 where he says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, listen to this, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. He says, and then he adds, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. He says, Think about that, having peace with God. Do you ever think about what that means to us to have peace with God? I remember so clearly the day that Christ came into my life, in my heart, and God changed me. I repented and I put my trust in Christ that day. I cried out to God for mercy. And I never forget that first night I put my head on the pillow. And I used to be honest with you. I, I was 35 years old. I was like a pressure cooker. This self-righteous pressure cooker, I'll call myself. And there was always that fear. What happens if I don't wake up? Or what happens, you know? And I remember that night I put my head on the pillow. And I prayed, Lord, I'm in your hands. I have nothing to worry about now. I stand before God. And I didn't understand the theology and everything, but I knew I belonged to God and I was okay. That's peace with God. When you can put your head on the pillow, when you can be in all types of circumstances and situations, and yes, they're tense and they're difficult and they're painful, some are torturous. But if deep down inside you know, I have peace with God. And like Paul says, he says, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. He knows the day will come where he will see Christ face to face. And he says, and we will be like him. We will see him as he is. 1 John 3. Oh, I... I think about that moment of actually seeing God. That's, that's a moment that I, I just, it's indescribable. We can't describe it, but I, I think about that, and that will be the moment where we will 
obtain completeness and utter satisfaction and contentment of the heart and soul and fulfillment like we have never understood. We're always trying to fill our lives, fill our lives. At that moment, we're going to be overfilled. You know, it's just going to be flowing out of us. It'll be wonderful. And that's, Paul reminds us in that, that we have peace with God. We're justified through faith. And he says in this that, uh, and I know I'm, I'm, I'm going longer than I said. I'm near eight minutes already. I'm, so <laughs> he says, and in it, Paul reminds us, he said, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You know, and it, he says, uh, early he says, while we were still powerless, he says. That's when God, we were powerless because we were, we were bound by sin. We could not choose what is right. Jonathan Edwards made that in one of his, I can't remember what writing was, but it's so clear he says that we cannot choose what's right without the grace of God until he changes our hearts. We can choose what we want, but we always choose what's wrong. We choose sin. We don't want God. Go back to Romans 1. You know, that allergy to God, of being allergic to God. We want to keep him away from us. We don't want that like that. Anyway, and he ends toward the end with, he says that we had death through Adam, but now we have life in Christ. Chapter 6. We're, almost, we're over halfway. All right. Then Paul moves from justification in chapter 6 to sanctification. That gradual of our lives becoming more and more separated to God, unto God, and to becoming more holy, more like Christ. And again, we will never obtain that in this life. But we're on that path. But our Christian life shouldn't look like this. You know, the path of sanctification, yeah, it's not just, you know, where we go like that, but it should be, we might have a little dry spell, and then it should always be moving, up. the curve should always be going upward, upward, until finally when we're made perfect, when we'll be like Christ, sinless. But Paul talks about that, and he, it's a call for believers to a new kind of living. The old man is to death, and the new man is to conform to Christ. Paul says, this, this message comes over and over in the New Testament. In Ephesians chapter 4, starting at verse uh, 22, Paul says, he says, you were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your mind, and we'll look at that later, he says, and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. That's the path where we, are, we become dead to sin and we become alive in Christ. And it's all because of the grace of God. All this, and we're going to see when we get to, we will get to chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. And he says, the, it's all the mercies of God. That's, all these things are the grace and mercy of God. There's nothing we could do on this. It is. And in, in chapter 6, it's where Paul says, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Here. 
in, in chapter 7, Paul talks about that. Now we're in this new life that he talked about in chapter 6, but we still struggle. We're in this body, in this flesh. Our hearts have been changed, but they, we still want to pull back to that old life. We still want self-control. We want autonomy, even when Christ is in our heart. If you don't, then you never sin. If anybody here never sins, that means you have accepted God as your sovereign, complete sovereign, and you have no struggles. But I believe everybody here does sin because we all, even though we've been changed by God, we want to pull away and we still want to have control. And it's so foolish. When we sin, we always regret it afterwards. At that moment, we may feel exhilarated. I'm doing what I want to do. That high doesn't last too long. You know, it's almost like a drug addict sin, as it reminds me of. You know, they, they're just dying for that, what they want at that moment. But then the moment it wears off, it's like you're in a deeper, blacker hole, always, from that. Anyway, in verse 8, uh, chapter 8, I'm going to pull ahead, skip some things. So he continues about the battle of the flesh and the spirit. But God promises us final victory in chapter 8. He says that the victory will be complete. Until then, we have the Holy Spirit. He, he helps us with our weaknesses. In our prayers, He helps us. Life, searching our hearts, teaching to know God's will. He touches on the concept here also of gracious election. This is a touchy subject sometimes. It can be varied on this but he starts to touch on that a little bit in this anyway I'll move on and he uh, I, I want us to remember though that idea of of election God all the way back in Exodus 33 says to Moses I will have mercy upon I will have mercy and I will have compassion upon those I have compassion you know it's God's sovereign choices here. And in verse 9 through 11, uh, chapter, I'm sorry, chapter 11, 9 through 11, then he uh, talks about that sovereign election and he talks about his plan for Israel and finally what, will, what he will do with Israel where he says that all Israel will be saved. He has at some point right now, the Jews have been kind of put on hold a little bit and God had brought the gospel to the Gentiles but he says we're engrafted into that main root he says and eventually that all Israel will be saved like that uh, anyway he he goes on for this and uh, did I miss something I wanted to say there uh, yeah he does talk a little bit about the preaching of the gospel uh, and his future for the Jews I'll leave that now I can get rid of these okay now, Paul covers through this, and I did a very quick, haphazard overview of those first 11 chapters, but in it, over and over again, we see the mercy of God and the grace of God, what he has done for us through Christ, through the gospel. Now, the question is, we have all that doctrine and what do we do with it? And I did not give the church office, I forgot to give them a title. 
I'm not good on titles. Last time I gave a title, I forgot it at the beginning of the message. So I don't, I don't, I don't think about the title much. You know. But I guess if we had a title, it would be God's will for our life. Because this today is what God's will is for everyone who has come to faith in Jesus Christ and has been changed. Let's look at today's verse. But before we do, let me just back up for a moment. I do want to say something because I think it's part of this whole narrative I'm giving. Paul goes along here because it's a moment to look at true worship. Paul goes along and in chapter 32, there's a a big switch at chapter 30, uh, verse 32 and verse 33. In verse 33, it's like Paul himself has been talking about all this mercy and grace of God and all these wonderful doctrines he's given. And then if you look at verse 33 in chapter 11 of Romans, Paul breaks out into, to me, pure worship. He's, it's like he sings a doxology here. All of a sudden in verse 33, it's like, it finally, Paul can't hold it in anymore. For 11 chapters, he's been writing about this stuff. And verse 33 says, Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. It's like Paul is ready to explode almost. And in verse 33, it, it has to come out. It has to come out his gratitude and his amazement at God his awe and wonder of what God has done in his great plan of salvation for mankind. He says, oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his thoughts and his, his thoughts or his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. In other words, who can comprehend this, what God has done? Because if you think about it, man rebelled against God. He was sinful. Now, people, lots of times, you talk to them and they'll say, well, why doesn't God just forgive everybody? But God is also a just God. So how does he reconcile that? How does he forgive us without justice being served? And that's where Jesus comes in. Jesus took our, the just punishment that we deserved, Christ took it. And that makes all the difference. And God's amazing plan. And what we forget sometimes, you know, lots of times people say, well, Jesus died for my sins. That's true. But he also lived for our righteousness. If, if Jesus just had to die for our sins and not come as a man and live for those 33 uh, years, then he could have just came down on a parachute got on the cross, died, and went straight back up to heaven. Why bother to live here for 33 years like he did, you know, as a a suffering servant? Because he had to live that perfect life that would be transferred. Just remember that the cross is that double transfer. My sins are put on Christ, and Christ's righteousness from his perfect life here is transferred to our account too. We need, he needed to come as man. Now who could figure this out except God? So therefore, God was the justifier, as he says, and also just. He was the one who took care of our problem 
and yet he maintained his integrity as a justice, as perfect justice. You know, that's something. And Paul is writing about all these things here, and it just overwhelms them like that. And then he says, who has known the mind of the Lord? He quotes, that's Isaiah. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay him? And then he adds, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen, he says. That is, that is a man who is in full worship mode, who is just... He's, he had to stop the letter at one point and say, enough of the doctrine. i got to talk about that. i gotta, I got to let this all out now. And then when he does that, he says, therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy. After all that, Paul says, in conclusion now, what, do, what does this mean? He says, I urge you, some of your versions might say, I beseech you. What it means, ultimately, is I'm begging you. And that uh, the word is uh, para, I think, I, I forgot now if it's paracleto, paracleto, it is. And it's a very tender type of word. And think of the paraclete, the, the Holy Spirit is the paraclete. He comes alongside us like that. And the comforter. And paracleto, it's, it's a word, it has to do with us literally begging for. It's, a, it's very tender. And Paul is saying, I'm begging you, he says, in view of God's mercy. The view of God's mercy is looking at what these 11 chapters now, there weren't chapters naturally, he wrote a letter, but therefore are, for make it easier for us. But in those 11 chapters, he says, that's viewing God's mercy. So he says, I'm begging you, brothers, after these 11 chapters of that doctrine that I've told you what Jesus did, he says, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as living sacrifices. Isn't it interesting? Before Christ, man sacrificed to make atonement. After Christ's atonement, we now, because of that atonement, offer sacrifices. Different reasons. One time we needed to offer that sacrifice to temporarily cover our sins with the blood of an animal, the life of an animal in place of us. Temporary, Hebrews tells us. It was just, you know, foreshadow. But then when Christ came once for all, he made that permanent atonement for us. But in the process... God says, now you are the sacrifice. You put yourself on the altar. All he's asking for is us. I remember 1999, I think it was, I had a tough year in my Christian life. It was just a, a, a very tough year. It was, you know, some might call it the dark night of the soul or just that, that was a valley for me. And I remember I was journaling, and one morning I was writing in the journal, and I, and I just put, Lord, I have nothing to offer you. I 
except a broken and contr not contrite, I said a broken and sinful heart. And that was one of those moments. At certain times, maybe you've experienced that, but you almost throw out something to God and there's like a, almost an instant audible <laughs> answer. I don't know if, you, I've only experienced that about three, I think three times in my life where, I mean, it was almost like I could hear it audibly. And I'll never forget that the Lord, the Lord, just as I wrote that, he said, that's exactly what I want. Your broken and sinful heart, give it to me. And I, but it was almost like he just, you know, was, it was like he was next to me speaking in my ear. It was, and it was instantaneous, too. It's like that, you know, sometimes, we, oh, Lord, you know, like the psalmist says, how long, Lord, how long? You know, we wait for an answer, and it goes on and on. And, and this was like, just, and God wants us. And, you know, this is not a new message. Go back to the Old Testament. Go back to the Pentateuch. In Deuteronomy, what does he say? Love the Lord your God. I know I use that verse a lot, but it's so basic, and yet I, I think we don't get it sometimes, or we don't do it. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. And sometimes it's a strength, the variations. That's what God wants right from the beginning. He wants all of us. He says, just surrender yourself to me. Not the first year in salvation, we have to, you know, trust God and do this and that. But even as sanctified believers, we have to continually put ourselves on the altar and offer ourselves up. And it's funny because he says, offer your bodies as living sacrifice. That's real temple talk. That was talk in the, the Old Testament, the, Levitic, uh, the Levitical priesthood. That's the type of language that's used, you know, about offering up, offering. And he says, we're to offer ourselves. Do you ever think like that? About your offering yourself to God? You know, do we really think like that? I want to give myself totally to the Lord. I remember <laughs> the first time, as, as I'm talking, maybe I shouldn't read these things that come into my head, and I shouldn't read, maybe sometimes I get in trouble, but uh, I remember there was a time in my life where I wanted to say, it was going on for months, Lord, whatever it takes, I want to know you. And I'd be praying to the Lord, and I'd be thinking in my mind, I'd be thinking it. I didn't say it like God didn't know my thoughts, right? I mean, <laughs> we looked at Psalm 139, you know, before a word is on my mouth, you already know it. And, but I'm thinking, I want to say, Lord, whatever it takes, I want to know you. And I was afraid to. And to, to show you a warped theology and warped concept of God, I, th I really do. I think in the back of my mind, it was like the moment I said that, you know, I was going to hear like this voice go, now I've got you, you little worm. You know, when I'm like, I've got, and it's like, no, and the bolts would be coming down, you know, or he'd like cripple me or blind me or do something. And it was like, no. And there was that fear. That's, that's warped view of God. 
That's what God is waiting. That's the old view that we maybe had as pagans. You know, if there was a God, he would be, you know, or whatever. But, and I remember the one day I said that. And it was like, oh. You know, to be able, and, and I'm going to be honest with you. That next year <laughs> was one of my toughest periods in my life. I'm not, I goes back to my journal. That was before the journal, you know. But you know what? It's the best thing we can do is to really surrender, offer our bodies as living sacrifice. And when he says body, it goes back to heart, soul, mind, and strength. Give him our will. You know, give him everything. Paul says, and why? In view of God's mercy. He says, look what God has done for you. He's forgiven you. He's given you peace. He's justified you. He's, he's adopted you. He's given you eternal life, forgiveness. He goes on and on. When you, if you look through those 11 chapters, you can you know, pull dozens and dozens of benefits from God's mercies. And he says, in view of that, offer yourself. But then he says, in, uh, therefore, he says, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as living sacrifices. And there's always that, I know people have talked about that, you know, a dead sacrifice goes on the altar and it lays there. You know, a living sacrifice, if it start, the heat starts coming up on the altar, as I start to burn, I can jump off and start running, you know. Where, but we, he's saying, give your life. Now, God has given you everything. You give yourself back. And you know what? The more we give to God, the more we actually receive and benefit in the end. And it's funny, you know, well, I think one of the problems is today, we're always looking for what can God do for me? What can I get from God? You know, even as, as, as Christians and mature Christians sometimes, we're always wanting to take from God, take from God. And you know what? There's something about giving to God where we find contentment and peace and fullness of laying ourselves on the line from me. He says, offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. And then listen, he says, this is your spiritual act of worship. can also be translated, this is your reasonable act of worship. In other words, Paul's telling us, he's saying, by giving yourself, offering yourself back to God for all he's done for you, he says, it's the logical thing to do. Why wouldn't you? He's basically saying there. He's saying, it's reasonable. You know, reminds me of when God says in Isaiah 1, you know, come now, let us reason together. Our faith is a reasonable faith. And it's a reasonable thing to do to, to give back God ourselves. Doesn't he, don't, doesn't he own us anyway, in a sense? <laughs> He's our master. He owns us. You know, well, let me just get to our text. He says, as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. Think about the idea God wants us as sacrifices to be separated, holy, sanctified. 
That should be our life, shouldn't it? We talk about sanctification. I want to live the sanctified life. You know, it's, it's just the idea of being set apart for use by God, separated from sin and used by God. Think about in the, uh, the Old Testament in the temple. The articles of the temple used to be sanctified. They were holy. There was nothing magical about them except they were only used for God. That concept of being separated for God, separated from sin, devoted to God his, in his use. That's the way we are to be. He says holy and pleasing. And it's not so much pleasing for us, but that pleases God when we do that. We should want to please God. Don't we want to make our Father in heaven happy? I mean, when you think about that. All right, I'm almost finished up here. Uh, then he says, now, he first told us what we are to do, but now he tells us how to do it in verse 2. He told us, this is what, this is what you should do because of what God has done, and then he says, how we do it. How do you do it? Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world. I'm going to stop there just for a moment. By being told not to conform to this world, sometimes, do you ever know people who love to not conform, be nonconformist for the sake of being a nonconformist? They do it for the wrong reason. It's just they want to be different. I don't want to be like everybody else, so I'm going to do this. No, the motivation should be because we want to obey God. We want to please God. We want to do what will make us pleasing to God. He says, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world. The idea of the pattern of this world is, and Christians, sometimes we get a weird view of that. It's basically talking about the worldview, the ungodly ways and systems of the world, those systems that if we look at the world, it's, it's the opposite. It's antithetical to, to what God's kingdom is about. You know, and he's saying, don't fall into you know, following the world's ways. And, you know, sometimes it's, and it's not, how can I put it? Sometimes a Christian, you know, a Christian woman might say, well, you know, people in the world wear lipstick, so I'm not going to wear lipstick. That's ridiculous. You know, I mean, that kind of view. We don't, if you choose not to, that's okay. But if it's because I'm afraid I'm going to look like the world, well, something like that. Naturally, with fashion and clothes, you know, we want to be modest. You know, we want to be careful how we do things like that. But we, we have to be careful of not just withdrawing from the world because we're we, we just because the world does it just to be contrary to it we need to ask ourselves why we're doing what we're doing you know what is my motive for doing what i'm doing and i think that's 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 where it is at the heart it's like you know people say well i'm a christian i can't go to the movies well yes yeah, some movies you shouldn't go to Movies that, you know, glorify adultery and fornication and violence and things like that. But, I mean, if a movie is decent, what's wrong? You know, some might disagree with me on that, but 
You know, there are some decent movies out there. By the way, the last movie I went to, I think, was The Passion of Christ. So, I mean, I'm someone who doesn't know what's going on in the movie world that much. But uh, I know there, once in a while, do come up things that are, are good to watch like that. Anyway, he says, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world. He says, but be transformed. You know, don't be a conformer, be a transformer. He says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. I'm, I'm, I'm preaching to the choir here. You know what that means. The Word of God. Ask yourself, how much time do I spend in the Word of God? How much time do I really spend not just doing my, uh, i got to read three chapters a day, boom, 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 I read them, I'm good. But taking it sitting and looking at it, and I've said this before, but when we read the Word of God, we should see it for what it actually is. We're getting alone and listening to God, what He has to say to us. It's spending time with God. It's not just, you're not reading a novel. You know, you'd be better off, I'll be honest, I think you're better off to read a paragraph a day if you can soak that in and apply what's taking place than to read five chapters that you want to get through the Bible in five chapters a day. Nothing wrong with that. I'm not saying that's bad. Some people can read five chapters a day and absorb it and apply it, and that's wonderful. I'm the kind of guy, I'll be honest, when I go through a book of the Bible, I can spend months in it. Just I'll take, if I get on a ver one verse and, it's, and it strikes me or starts to speak to me, I'll stay there for my quiet time that day. The next day, I'll go to the next verse. And if it's, it's not the same, then I'll, I'll read until it's something really grabs me. Now, everybody's different. But be in the Word. He says, the renewing of your mind. And why does he tell us that? Because then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is. Don't we want to know what God's will is? As his people, what, you know, we can test and approve what God's will is his good, his pleasing, and perfect will. And not again, not so much pleasing for us, but pleasing to God. We want to please God. His will is good, it's pleasing, and it's perfect. Yeah. I see by the clock, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to end at this point. Again, we, uh, I'd like to talk about more, but I, I won't today. I'll stop. I'll like they say, that's another story for another time. Uh, anyway, and we have a lot left for our service. So I encourage you, or I'm going to say, I beg you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Amen. God bless.